0: time but the thing is a lot of these bachelorette parties came not knowing that the nfl was here so they had to change their plans up a little bit
1: Uh, and it just changes like the crowd like what you're here for like i don't want to hang out with a bunch of football guys like i'm good i already have to watch football on sundays i don't need to, to see any more of that Did you realize that the NFL draft was gonna be here? No. No idea. Like mind blown when we landed. We had no idea. No idea. No idea. idea. When did I start planning the draft? Because I feel like I just found out about this. I found out three (laughs) days ago, and it made me want to cry. But in the end, the person that's gonna pay for this is my husband. When I refuse to watch football the entire season, like I'm talking no Super Bowl. No. Because you get married once. Yep. How often does the draft happen? Every freaking year.
0: Every year. Come on, Tennessee. Y'all done played the coast 20 times in 10 years, and you done won three games. Oh, my word. (laughs) Stop it. Damn! What the hell is that? What would you
2: say you do here? Stone's Weekly Dose.
3: Because I'm kind of an idiot. I'm a dumb guy.
1: Brian, you don't have to keep trying so hard to impress me. I already really like you.
4: Your midweek
0: download destination.
1: I told you about Brian. I told you. Come on, man. Brian was just making a joke. I'm so lucky to have met you, Brian. You're such an amazing guy.
3: It's Stone's Weekly Dose. Not the South, change, Brian. Note to self, don't schedule a bachelorette party when one of the biggest NFL drafts in the history of NFL drafts, or the biggest, I just say, is taking place. Welcome in, everybody. Oh, also, don't die. Welcome in, everybody, to the Stone on Air podcast. It is the supposed for profit venture that is labeled weekly as recently the not so weekly dose. It is the first of the month. It's May 1st, 2019. We're going to have a fun show for you today. Uh, Lots of audio to play with and uh, lots of good direction and notes and preparation. And when I do that, it makes just a lot more fun. It's still all right. I mean, it's still bearable if I don't do that. But uh, putting that stuff together makes it more fun. And it's a very simple show today. I'm not going to be doing anything that means all that much um, I'm going to touch on the soccer wars here in the first segment of the show. In the second segment of the show, I am going to look into the history of the Woodstock Music Festival. As now, now as of uh, record time here, press time, if you will, now they're saying, uh, organizers are saying the, the festival is not canceled. Um, that's hard to believe, considering the investors have pulled out. The bottom line is is that the Woodstock Ventures is the name of the company that was put together by these four guys back in uh, you know 20-somethings, back in 1968 into 69, I guess. Um, they're, almost everything they touch is a shit show, and there's only one guy who is consistent every time over this course of 50 years and I'm a big fan of the Woodstock phenomenon, the 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 subculture, the counterculture of the late nineteen sixties, or you know, most of the sixties into the seventies. But this guy can't do anything right. And it's very odd. I'm gonna look into that and just kind of look at the history of 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 the first Woodstock and just to show you how it's revisionist history, revisionist as it could be, to say that Woodstock is anything other than a tarnished name in the festival industry. Uh, We'll do that in the second segment of the show. i got lots of audio. That one's going to take a little while, and it might be your thing. It might not. Coming up in the final segment of the show, it's been a year and three weeks since I met Tony Kornheiser. And uh, he's a sportscaster, news columnist, uh, sports columnist, lifestyle columnist, television uh, host. He's been on Monday Night Football. Uh, Very good chance most people listening to this already know this because I've talked about it last year after I met him in Washington, D.C. And I heard this interview he did uh, on somebody else's podcast talking about the radio industry, and I didn't realize how influential he was on me and how I shaped almost everything I've done Based on the same kind of the uh, theoretical uh, approach that he has to the way he w- does, more specifically, radio. I don't write, so I don't I can't relate to him on that. And I don't do TV. I enjoy his television show, but I I I don't do TV and don't have any kind of real desire to. But with him just sitting down and talking about the industry itself, it made me realize how much I learned from him without even realizing that I did. And I love the interview, and I'll play some clips from that as well. Again, that might not be your thing either. I'm not sure. I appreciate you being here regardless. If you've downloaded the show, I guess I at least got that much out of you. Uh, write and review. I listen to podcasts here and there, and everybody's always talking about it over and over again. Write and review. Write and review. Write and review. If you get an opportunity to do that on, uh, on iTunes or anywhere else, I'd certainly appreciate it. If you are saying to yourself out loud or in your head, Brian, there's not a chance I'm going to do that because I don't feel like even trying to figure that out. Well, hell, I don't blame you. I wouldn't either because I've never done it either. So I can't exactly blame you for not wanting to. But if you do find yourself in a position to do that, I certainly would appreciate it. So a couple things here before I get into soccer war talk. So the NFL draft was in Nashville. I knew some people that went. It looked like it was a lot of fun Although, I think that the NFL draft itself is quite a boring event. I mean, like, just the naming of players once every 10 minutes to all the teams, I just don't get any entertainment value out of that. But... The way they've done it now, the NFL, I mean, these guys, all they do is figure out a way to make five extra bucks, and they always make five extra bucks no matter what they're doing. And good for them. I'm not trying to be uh, flipping about it. They have turned this NFL draft into, I believe it's a fabrication of excitement because I don't think most anybody's heard of any of these players, and I think it's a—it's uh, it, all overreaction. I think having an opinion on, oh, that was a good pick, or this is a good draft pick, or that was a good draft class, nobody knows, not even the smartest of scouts in the NFL, so it's uh it's it to me is a false sense of excitement a false sense of water cooler talk but hey whatever you like whatever you do whatever you enjoy i'm not here to tell you what to do with your life i do know that going to party in nashville is fun (laughs) i know that i don't need anybody to you know confirm that for me and i thought about going on the saturday it went from thursday to saturday at the end of april here and uh man i it looked good it looked fun but Talking hundreds of thousands of people. I don't know if they're using riverbend math there or not. But the pictures certainly show what looks like an incredible amount of people. And it looked like an incredible amount of fun. Let's see a couple other things. I've decided not to go to Shaky Knees in Atlanta this weekend. It... Saddens me greatly because it is such a good lineup And I have two tickets in my hand, two wristbands But uh, I'm going to I'm gonna miracle somebody with those And make somebody's day, let them go down And I'm going to stay here in Chattanooga to uh, work portions of it anyway The running of the Chihuahuas uh, I think this is the 13th year now It's at the Pavilion here on Saturday Yeah, I don't like dogs either If you're saying like I would Who gives a damn about a bunch of dogs? Yeah, well, I agree But it's a fun time down at the uh, Pavilion Anytime there's a party at the Pavilion I'm usually going to be there, especially when I can get paid and probably be able to eat and drink all day long, too. So should be fun. And leading into Soccer Wars talk, I am emceeing the kit reveal at nightfall on Friday. Well, what is a kit reveal, you might be asking? Just think uniform. Think jerseys for home, away, and I think there's an alternate as well. So that reveal will be before the opener at the first night, fall of 2019. So that's a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to that. In the neighborhood of 6.15 or so and I think closer to maybe more like 6.30 to 7. uh, I'll be doing the scene. I'm not exactly sure what that is yet. I'll find out as it gets closer. Uh, Several different people will talk. We'll reveal the the, the kits and then uh, music for the first time down at Miller Plaza in the new and improved and finished and cleaned up and shiny Miller Park. So if you are around downtown and Miller Park on Friday, come on by and see us once again, a free event. If it's free, it's for me. If it's free, give me three. All right. All right. All right. Let's get into a soccer wars conversation. I have not done this in quite some time. And I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm not even specifically talking about the soccer wars as much as just the updates of where they're at. I will assume that you already are fully aware of all the backstory of the way the Red Wolves came into town, the CFC for the last decade, the, there just can't be a chance or the chances are so slim that anybody is listening to this right now who does not know that backstory. The most recent here is the CFC is, uh, had a couple of uh, friendlies here to start the season. The kit reveal, as I mentioned earlier, that I'm involved with is Friday. And so the full disclosure I'm going to have to put out there as I get started here is, at first, virtually like everybody else, I was astonished, absolutely blown away by this power play by Sean McDaniel and his outside investor or owner and buying the rights to this USSL, whatever the Division Three league is and the Red Wolves and all that. Uh, turning his back on people he had been working with for nearly a decade, like Tim Kelly and crew Brock and Sheldon Grizzle and uh, other names at Davenport. So everybody else, I I don't know all their names. And so at first it was just kind of like just speechless. Like, I don't really know what to think about all this. Who's maybe in the wrong here and who's maybe not. Like, it's hard to tell. But as this has gone on for what I guess is in the neighborhood of a year now, uh, a little bit less, I guess, with the uncertainty of who is going to be playing where and who which, which contracts were going to be renewed for between Finley and CFC, were the, were the Red Wolves going to, going to kind of backroom deal their way into a Finley Stadium contract? Was CFC going to be left out high and dry? Well, once that turned out to not be the case, because don't forget that Finley Stadium is run by the city and the county. It is governmentally owned. And then the uh, Red Wolves are playing their games at a high school field now and have decided that they're going to build their own stadium. So all that's kind of shaken out. All the questions of who's going to be playing where and how this is going to go forward is, is starting to become clearer. And back to the full disclosure, I'm going to just come right out and say, I mean, it's quite obvious. I am a CFC fan, and if given the choice to choose between the two, that's who I'm going to choose. Now, I'm not this big, huge, super soccer fan. I'm more of a... Southside Finley Stadium, First Tennessee Pavilion fan, and if you've got an event going on there, like running the Chihuahuas this weekend, I'm going to be involved if I'm uh, if I'm allowed to be, because it's a it's a property I have championed since 1997. Since everybody complained and bitched and moaned about the money the city and county put into it, I have always been a uh, a, a supporter, a cheerleader for that property. Am I going to go to this other place to watch soccer a bunch? I don't know, except for. This announcement in the last week or so, this is from the Times Free Press. East Ridge to be home for the new Chattanooga Red Wolves Soccer Club. Chattanooga Red Wolves FC announced today plans to build a 5,500-seat stadium off I-75 adjacent to Camp Jordan. The privately funded stadium will cost $6 million out of an estimated $125 million project expected to take place over the next three to five years. Years. The franchise hopes to play on its new artificial turf field as soon as the 2020 USL League One season. The league is recognized as Tier 3 in professional soccer. The new Eastridge Stadium will be surrounded by year-round amenities such as shopping, eateries, sports bars, hotels, and condos. With a 35,000-square-foot convention center and open green space. The Red Wolves SC supporter group, the Scenic City Alphas, never heard of them. I guess think the Chattanooga Hooligans, right? Will be given the opportunity to be involved in the in the design of their supporter section. Bob Martino, the out of town owner of the Chattanooga Red Wolves, let's see just a little bit more here. Two more small paragraphs. The stadium will be used to by excuse me by both the Red Wolves SC, Lady Red Wolves FC, and the Red Wolves. SC Academy and the Dalton Red Wolves of USL League Two. Blah, blah, blah. Sorry. The stadium will have high visibility from I 75, where more than 130,000 cars on average pass exit one per day. The very end here says 11,000 fans in its first two exhibitions this season is what the Chattanooga FC has drawn. The city will soon have the task of supporting two soccer teams. This is from Sean McDaniel, team president and GM, formerly a founding member of the Chattanooga Football Club, now with the Red Wolves, says, quote, if Chattanooga has proven anything over the past 10 years, it's that it can outkick its coverage. To be a pro franchise here is just the beginning of what Chattanooga can be. If Chattanooga has proven anything over the past 10 years, it's that it can outkick it's coverage. I'm not sure if Sean McDaniel knows what out kicking your coverage is, but whatever. I I, I I get the point. Um. So I guess when it comes down to it, I have also been a champion, if you will, for East Ridge. I've lived here for ten years. I think a lot of things about this area is uh, is good. I think a lot of the things about this area is very very not good. Um. the The thing is, is I had someone uh, get a hold of me or text me, uh, just a friend of mine I work with at the day job, saying, "Hey, man, you got to be loving that property value uh, talk with all this uh, going on down in East Ridge." And I, I, you know, I just kind of said barely, but thinking to myself more than anything, really, the the end exit one and that end of East Ridge and where I'm at by the tunnels might as well be a hundred miles away. I mean, it's it's probably a seven mile stretch. Maybe, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little, probably not a little less, maybe a little bit more. It might as well be 100 miles away. I mean, what's going on down there, Camp Jordan, Bass Pro Shops, uh, all of that doesn't really have anything to do with what's going on on the other end, and East Ridge needs a lot of help, and I don't know that a Bass Pro Shop seven miles away by the interstate or a stadium for a soccer team that barely anybody in the city cares about is going to do anything for me, but if it does help the city of East Ridge with tax revenues and all those kinds of things, if we're not just giving the land away then I guess I am a fan of that. It is very similar on a very tiny, tiny scale of what the Braves have done uh, moving out of Atlanta into, into Cobb County in Marietta. Uh, people making jokes about, hey, that's Easter- they're the Eastridge uh, Red Wolves. I mean, it, it, it's not unheard of to take a team outside of the city limits and play in a uh, neighboring uh, uh, suburb, and uh, so that doesn't make this – very weird at all. And, and, and try to do this downtown. Geez, I mean, they're going to get all kinds of breaks and it's going to be so much cheaper to do this in East Ridge, right at the border, you know, 20 miles away from Dalton. Um, it's a big time soccer culture in North Georgia and, uh, you know, maybe it'll work. I'm, I'm not going to wish them the worst. I'm not going to wish them failure, but I also am going to question how much of this actually happens. How much of this $125 million complex with, uh, you know, massive convention center, hotels, condos, sports bars, and all this—this this kind of pie in the sky, living in their head, kind of announcements from this, uh, from from this Times Free Press uh, article from a, you know about five or six days ago. How much of that stuff actually happens? I mean, it's fun to sit around and kick around numbers and dream big and have a rendering. Anybody can get uh, some asshole uh, artist to uh, to to draw out a rendering real quick. Is that something that the city of Eastridge has got any kind of uh, interest in supporting? Maybe. maybe, Absolutely maybe. Uh, let's, just, let's just ask Udawah what's happened when they've added more and more eateries and more and more hotels and more and more things uh, to do near those residential areas. Now, we're talking about a socioeconomical uh, gap of, of hundreds of thousands from Eastridge to uh to Ultawa, but once upon a time, Ultawa wasn't a super high end place either. I mean, it's always been better than East Ridge, but you get my point. I've been you know familiar with that area for nearly thirty years. So I know that it's it's I know its growth and development firsthand. And uh, can that happen here? Absolutely. It might. So I'm not going to hate on it. I'm not going to hope it doesn't work. I am going to question whether all those things are actually going to happen. I'm going to question who actually pays for what, and I'm going to keep an eye on it because it is fun to make an announcement and have a Facebook live show and, uh, and all that stuff. So I am, in full disclosure, complete transparency, I'm a CFC guy. Um, They treat me well. I've been a CFC guy for about five years now. Started around 2014 was when I first started. 13 a little bit, 14 a bunch, 15 when they made the run, 16 when they made another run, 17, 18, and now we are here to 19. So I hope that CFC wins. If there's a winner and a loser, I hope CFC is the winner. But maybe just maybe, and especially since they both are now going to be operating in areas of town that are near and dear to my heart, hopefully – both of them can thrive. Hopefully, Finley Stadium and First Tennessee Pavilion can continue to be uh, to, to be a cornerstone for that area of downtown Chattanooga and the South Side, more specifically. And hopefully, the the redevelopment of Exit One at the other end of East Ridge, from where I live, can help to, uh, as they say, rise the, the the tide that rises all the boats here in East Ridge. I'll believe it when I see it, but hopefully, that's what happens. One of the more fascinating things to me in my younger age, teens to 20s growing up, was 1960s counterculture and the movements that came from it. And Woodstock was a big part of that, the festival in New York State back in August of 1969. But at further review, this is really one of the more tainted and tarnished festival brand names in the history of outdoor music festivals here in the United States anyway and is consistently looked back by almost everybody with revisionist history as an amazing brand when in actuality it really isn't and it's because the same guy keeps screwing it up I'll tell you what I'm talking about next now more stone on air it's about
1: to get all stupid up in on Monday afternoon, officials with Densu Aegis Network, which was funding the multi-genre festival set to take place August 16th to the 18th, released the following statement, "...it's a dream for agencies to work with iconic brands and to be associated with meaningful movements. We have a strong history of producing experiences that bring people together around common interests and causes, which is why we chose to be a part of the Woodstock 50th Anniversary Festival. But despite our tremendous investment of time, effort, and commitment, we don't believe the production of the festival can be executed as an event worthy of the Woodstock brand name while also ensuring the health and safety of the artists, partners, and attendees. Reps for the festival say concerns about the capacity, site readiness, and permitting issues are forcing them to cancel. This comes following weeks of rumors that something is amiss. In mid-April, an email alerting agents about the postponement of Woodstock 50's ticket sale date had everyone worried that the 100,000-person anniversary concert wouldn't be happening. Tickets for the three-day event with headliners Jay-Z, The Killers, Dead & Co, and Imagine Dragons were supposed to go on sale Monday, April 22nd, in honor of Earth Day. With no new sale date announced, Billboard spoke with representatives for a number of acts on the lineup who said most artists had already been paid the deposits for their performances. One agent told us, no one knows what the hell is going on, but there is clearly a problem. Adding that the fact the event couldn't go on sale on time likely meant an issue with investors or site complications at the Watkins Glen International Speedway, which was scheduled to host. It looks like just last week the festival reached out to officials with Live Nation and AEG to inquire about a $20 million investment to save the event, but both companies declined. A source with knowledge of the proposal tells Billboard more than $30 million has already been spent on the lineup. By the time we got to Woodstock,
3: we were half a million strong. Welcome back to the show. And a celebration. Joni Mitchell's Woodstock done by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Of course, you probably already knew that. So is Woodstock on or is Woodstock off the 50th anniversary? That was slated to be August. I think the exact same dates as the original, if not very close. Grab the wrong damn paper there. Where is it? Where the hell is it? Got it. To get ourselves back to the god Maybe this is it. Yeah, there it is. Woodstock 50 canceled, question mark? Organizers say that festival will be a blast. Organizers meaning that's the official or the specific quote from Michael Lang, who seems to be one of the biggest deadbeats in the history of outdoor concert and festival promotion, at least when it comes to the Woodstock brand, because he has been there since the beginning. And every time a Woodstock event takes place, it either totally sucks, is completely, incredibly dangerous, loses all kinds of money, or outright just doesn't happen at all. And that's been happening now for 50 years. Now, obviously not consistently because there's only been three and now a talk of a fourth, but still, it's a long time that Mike Lane can't get this together. More on that in a minute. A spokesperson for the event's financial partners say that it has been canceled, and the county where the 2019 Woodstock Festival was was scheduled to be held is preparing to move on without it. Woodstock 50 vehemently denies the festival's cancellation and legal remedy will be sought, read a statement that Woodstock 50 issued Monday evening. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It, it doesn't appear that this massive 50-year uh, anniversary is going to happen. And, and if it does, it'll be a different kind of version. And it's still, if it does, it will be a mess. I got to get to this quickly because I have a lot of audio to play. So, first of all, before we get going here, uh, there's there's four guys that we're primarily gonna be taking a look at here early on. I'm gonna focus mostly on the 1969 festival because overall it was a dangerous disaster that just happened to turn into this cultural phenomenon, mainly because of the Warner Brothers movie, the uh, the the filming of the festival that was released a year later and won Academy Awards. Without that visual evidence of this really different kind of thing that America was not all that used to outside of Monterey Pop and a few others that were similar but not quite like this. Uh, People wouldn't have, I don't think, would have kept it in such a charming kind of memory in revisionist history without that. Because overall, it was a complete disaster, and I'll get to more of that in a minute. John Roberts, Joel Rosenman, Michael Lang, who is always the consist the constant here, and Artie Cornfield are or the original four that put this together. First I'm gonna start things off with a nineteen sixty-nine radio ad for Woodstock, nineteen sixty-nine. The huge concert of the summer.
0: The Woodstock Music and Art Fair, the three-day Aquarian Exposition at White Lake in Bethel, New York, will give you uncomplicated, unhurried, calm days of peace and music. Friday, August 15th, you'll hear stars such as Joan Baez, Arlo Guthrie, Tim Hardin, Richie Havens, Ravi Shankar, and many others. Saturday, August 16th, Can't Heat, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Grateful Dead, Janis Joplin, Jefferson Airplane, and The Who. Sunday, August 17th, Blood, Sweat and Tears, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Santana, Jimi Hendrix, Johnny Winter, and that's not all. Campgrounds will be open for two days before the festival. There are over 600 acres of land to roam, bazaars to browse, creative workshops. Heavy traffic is anticipated, so leave early if you wish to arrive on time. Tickets for the Woodstock Music and Arts Fair are $7, $14, and $18 for one, two, or three days, and can be purchased in advance at most local record stores. No checks will be accepted at the gate. Be at the Woodstock Music and Arts Fair, August fifteenth, sixteenth, and seventeenth, in Bethel, New York.
3: Seven, fourteen, and eighteen dollars for one, two, or three day passes. Wow.
5: Two hundred thousand followers of pop music have jammed the Catskills, Mountain Hamlet, of Bethel for a rock music festival. Cars are being abandoned on highways leading to the resort area. Festival producers have called for all vehicles heading to that festival to turn back home.
3: 18 bucks for a weekend pass to see. Woodstock in uh, 1969 inflation sure is a bitch right so i'm going to go back to this show from probably 1999 2000 behind the music most of you listening to this if you're anywhere near a uh, age range of mine you've heard of behind the music it was a great great series on VH1 sometimes a little over the top on trying to make things so overly dramatic but it was such a fun show and they did a behind-the-music Woodstock edition, and man, it was awesome. So I searched it out, found it, and then cut up some stuff from it. So first of all, we're going to start with the organizers of the original Woodstock 1969. John Roberts, Joel Rosenman, Michael Lang, who's the one who's always involved, and Artie Cornfield. This is about John Roberts and Joel Rosenman, the uh, the breadwinners, the, uh, the the silver spooners, the trust fund kids.
4: John Roberts was the heir to the and denture cream fortune. He grew up in Eatontown, New Jersey, and graduated as a history major from the University of Pennsylvania in 1966.
2: I had a very um, Ivy League kind of preppy background.
4: <laughs> Joel Rosenman grew up the son of a dentist in upscale Huntington, Long Island. Joel had a brief career playing guitar in a lounge band. But like John, Joel was pure Ivy League. He got a diploma from Princeton before becoming a highly ambivalent graduate of Yale Law School.
6: I had gone to law school because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life.
4: In the summer of 66, 24-year-old Joel met 21-year-old John Roberts while playing golf, and a friendship was born. Within a few weeks, Joel and John were roommates on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, two young men scheming to make their mark on the world.
3: So basically what they set out to do here, a couple of rich kids don't like their jobs. One's a lawyer, one's uh, whatever the hell else he's doing. And they decide to go into uh, business together and realize that their best bet would be a recording studio. So they open a recording studio somewhere in New York. I don't know how close to New York City, but in that general area. And they just are looking for more and more people to get involved to, uh, to continue this idea. The other two that they eventually come in contact with are Michael Lang, and
4: Artie Cornfield. Meanwhile, two guys with very different backgrounds and some ideas of their own were about to form another friendship. Michael Lang left his home in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn at 16. After dropping out of NYU, he moved south and ran one of the first head shops in Miami. He also promoted fledgling rock bands and staged a small rock festival. Michael Lang lived in a very different world than Joel Rosenman and John Roberts.
7: I mean, there was sort of the square world, and or the straight world, and there was this psychedelic world.
4: Like Michael Lang, Artie Kornfeld was from Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Artie had already made his mark in music. By 1968, he had written over 30 songs, including co-writing Jan and Dean's hit single, Dead Man's Curve before becoming a vice president at Capitol Records. I was music business. I was a writer and a songwriter, a producer, you know, and that's what I did. That, you know, that was my whole life.
3: So somehow between the recording studio and their involvement, Michael and Artie's in the music industry, they hook up together. I get to search this thing out behind the music Woodstock to get all the details. But So you've got a bunch of money on one side and a bunch of kind of just party and music industry types on the other. What could possibly go wrong there? John Roberts, the one who was initially the one with most of the money, uh, talking about specifically uh, Michael Lang from Behind the Music. In the beginning, uh, Michael was a a very uh, unknown quantity
2: to me. He was unlike the people I'd known growing up. He had agendas that he didn't share. If I could fault Michael, it is that he plays his cards way too close to the vest.
7: It wasn't enough time to really educate uh, everybody as to what had to happen. And frankly, I don't know that I could have because most of it was a blueprint somewhere in my head.
3: A blueprint in your head and he's uh, living in his head type, which you know those types. I know those types. Those types are a lot of fun until sometimes it's
4: not. More on Michael Lang. Michael Lang was the only one of the four already splintering partners with any experience producing a rock festival. But Woodstock was far more ambitious than anything he'd ever done before. They still hadn't found a place to throw the big party.
7: Woodstock was the first location. Unfortunately, it never really existed as a location because there was no open ground big enough once we really got serious about it.
3: So, I mean, just right there, we're already having those same issues in the other Woodstocks he's tried to put together. Let's do a big festival in Woodstock, New York. Oh, wait, there's nowhere to put a festival in Woodstock, New York, dude. Now what? Of course, that's the, the direction that he went. So they finally get it all together. They have the, 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 the land outside of Woodstock in Bethel, or uh, Wall, Wallkill. Wallskill? What is it? I can't remember exactly. But five weeks before they're supposed to have their festival where they've already sold tickets, they get their permit pulled. And
2: as the um, size of the event grew, their nervousness grew Proportionately, until finally they went to court and revoked our permit. We didn't have the resources or, obviously, the time to to fight it.
6: We'd sold tickets and we had advertised the Wallkill site. We were doing a great wall job. Wallkill, Wallkill, thousand tickets, and we were left without a home five weeks before the event.
4: Of course. They had also booked most of the concert. So, yeah, a
3: lot of this still is very familiar over the course of 50 years of Woodstock. So they get the permit revoked, and here comes old Max Yasker of Yasker's Farm, who adds a zero to the end of the price to use that land as a lyric in the Joni Mitchell song, going up to Yasker's Farm, going to join in a rock and roll band.
4: Max Yazger's 600-acre farm was a tranquil natural bowl about 98 miles from New York City. But it had no telephones, no water, no electricity, and no easy access. Yazger's farm was miles from any major thoroughfare. But it was a beautiful spot, and there was no other choice. Team Woodstock staff of 1,000 employees now prepared to construct a concert facility for 50 to 100,000 people. They had three weeks to get it done. Three weeks to get
3: it done. What could go wrong there as well, right? So they think they have security uh, secured through New York City Police Department, but uh, of course they don't.
4: Security in 1969 was a serious matter. Just a year earlier, in the summer of '68. Civil rights and anti-war protests had erupted into riots across America. Wes Pomeroy, who is now deceased, was in charge of security.
5: I worked for for Wes. So Wes and I went and made a deal with the police commissioner at the time that we were going to be able to interview and hire a, a number of New York City policemen. They were going to come up and be our police, except the night before the festival, the police commissioner got cold feet. I don't know what happened. There was political pressure in New York. And they said no
3: cops so they figure out how to get some kind of uh, security through i'm not sure what it is but they do get the security in place and uh then about oh i don't know they talk about how it's going to be two days before the festival that the camping opens i guess that was a bad idea because people showed up and uh filled the place up before they even had fencing up john roberts the the richest guy the the, the silver spoon kid here on the stone on air podcast
2: This moment on Wednesday before the festival began where I was still thinking we can still do it we can get these gates up we can collect tickets this is gonna be this is gonna work it's gonna be just fine you don't even have to bother to bring your tickets or anything because they're not gonna collect them there's no way they can they got a fence it's like half up and there are people just sitting in that field it's really beautiful
4: the team made a lame attempt to secure fences around the site, but it was too late. I mean, this Michael Lang run
3: production, because Michael Lang and uh, the Artie, whatever his name is, they were kind of the stoner types that had done the music industry. And the, the suits, the kids in the suits were on the outside looking in, watching everything go to hell. So well, it is
4: now officially a free concert. As the crowd continued to swell, the mood backstage was tense. There was uh, uh, immediately a feeling of uh, failure for the event, uh, the promoters to make their money, all of that. Here's these fences that didn't really hold up. The question was whether or not to accept the financial loss and officially announce that the concert was free. To John Morris, the answer was obvious.
0: Of course it's was a free concert. <laughs> they were already in there. Walked to my office, called John and Joel and said, John, Guys, this is the deal. This is what
6: I think should happen. It's, It's your tales. By this time, it was clear that unless we charged admission, we were going to be broke beyond broke we were
3: going to going to be in the hole and it would take us a long time to dig out of that hole maybe never so on the very first day of this massive festival in 1969 in august there was panic by the money guys now michael and uh, and artie were having a ball <laughs> taking drugs and hanging out in sight but panic from the guys where all the funding came from
5: they were panicked. I mean, <laughs> the, the, mo- the money was hemorrhaging. It wasn't just in the flowing, it was hemorrhaging out the door.
3: The weekend of the festival, um,
2: we were over a million in debt. And of course, the ticket money had somewhat dried up uh, as a result of no gates being there to collect <laughs> the revenues.
5: John and Joel had, you know, they had big fish to fry, and they were all dying on the plate.
4: By the first day of the festival, after eight months of spending, Woodstock Ventures had accrued $3.4 million in expenses. Against the $250,000 they had borrowed and the $1.3 million in ticket sales, they were now nearly $2 million in debt. John Roberts was in hell.
2: I did have to make a call on Friday to
6: the bank to say, this is going to cost me pretty much everything I have. Forget the ticket booths. Forget anything. Forget a thought that had to do with anything other than keeping these people safe.
3: Oh, I accidentally cut that one off a little early. Anyway, yeah, the safety aspect will come back up here before we wrap up the segment. More on Michael and Artie.
4: Michael and Artie were having a very different experience.
7: It was not threatening. None of it was threatening. All of it was very positive and very supportive, and every place you went, you felt that.
4: We just
6: sit there with our arms around each other just staring, you know? It might have mattered more to Joel and John because they were they were invested financially.
5: John and Joel were on one side of the fence, and Michael and Artie were on another.
6: It became a pattern after a while that it was kind of us against them. It was Michael and the production people letting us know as little as possible about how far over budget we were going to be.
7: Michael and Artie were, it's cool, man, it's cool, man. These people are communicating with each other. That, that rarely happens anywhere anymore. Right. It
6: has nothing to do with money
3: has nothing to do with money because none of it's yours dude that's michael lang there at the end from footage from the warner brothers woodstock movie which again saved the entire uh concept of the disaster that was woodstock because of the academy awards and giving the visuals and this the overall fascination that people had presently at that time and that has built through uh, borderline folklore and uh, certainly re- revisionist history over the last 50 years more from john roberts
6: financially this is a disaster but, okay. you, you, but you look so happy uh, very right. yeah. you sorry there, that's that's mike that lang anything. right
3: there i'm gonna start that over that's mike lang on the next clip financials it's a disaster but he got a big smile on his face
6: financially this is a disaster okay. but, you, you, but you look so happy uh, very look life. what you got
7: there man you couldn't buy that for anything
2: I got to call my family over the weekend and say, you know, I'm getting in way over my head.
5: John had these very straight parents that he knew he was going to be answering to, and they were on the phone. The brother, I believe the brother was around somewhere at that point.
2: If I'm going to be writing checks, I want to make sure that they're going to clear, and I'm going to have to fall back on you.
5: John was shaken up a great deal of the time, and so was Joel.
2: My father and my brothers said, do what you have to do. They got a lot of credit with me, but I don't think... The world ever realized how much they had invested themselves personally in in my particular madness.
6: The tension that
3: existed between Michael, Artie, John, and Joel had reached excruciating proportions. So really, at the end, you can th- thank the uh, what was the uh, or the the denture uh, glue cream stuff, whatever, whatever that uh, that family is, wherever that money came from. I guess you can kind of. Thank them for picking up the bill for actually paying people to at least attempt to keep people safe. So the the festival starts three hours late. Richie Havens does freedom for like a half hour, which most people who know much about Woodstock know about. Bad drugs circulating everywhere. 20 miles, 20 miles of backed up traffic at Bonnaroo's worst. Backed up uh, t- 10 miles, maybe Maybe 15 that first year on the interstate. I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look. But 20 miles on a two-lane highway in this little, tiny, rural New York town. And uh, so if anybody who was involved with this who was sober, anybody who was involved with this who was responsible, you know, basically anybody other than Michael Lang, who's been still running this festival for 50 years or running Woodstock Ventures anyway, and then his buddy Artie, just about everybody else was panicked and concerned about major Major safety concerns, financial concerns, all the way around.
4: Backstage, the promoters had half a million reasons to be apprehensive. A lot of people could
2: have died if either the police moved in in some way or weather, drugs, a lack of preparation lack of water, lack of food. If they weren't panicked about that, they should have been.
5: Not only because many of them were stoned on acid and every other drug under the sun, but we had a situation in which there was not sufficient food on hand. There was no way to service the toilets. There was for ambulances to come and God forbid something happened.
3: So the idea that this festival was some kind of success is absolutely positively false. Now, is it a phenomenon, a fascination? Did it kind of define a generation? Absolutely. Am I still as fascinated as I've ever been? No doubt. But the but the idea that this was a, a successful uh, venture is absolutely patently absurd. And the last audio clip, I could have got more, but I was tired of going through the whole uh, the whole hour of all that. It is incredible. VH1, Woodstock, Behind the Music. I encourage you to find it. It's difficult to find because uh, it is about 20 years old. Final clip here, about a minute long, from once again, John Roberts, the initial guy who had all the money And in the end was going to be the one primarily responsible for anything from a legality standpoint or a morality standpoint or any of those kinds of things. And he could have said, hey, we're done. We're canceling this. We're pulling the plug. Everybody's going home. But he didn't. He stuck with it. And then he got a call from the governor of New York.
2: I think at around that exact moment, I was getting a phone call from Nelson Rockefeller, the governor of New York, who uh, told me that... um, he was thinking of sending in 10,000 National Guardsmen.
5: Oh yeah, I was on the phone with him. I mean, we were all on the phone together.
2: So everyone else was having their croissant and uh <laughs> I was on my knees begging and pleading with Nelson Rockefeller not to send in troops. I don't think I said groovy. He wasn't the kind of guy who would have said groovy to, but I said, I think everything is just fine, Governor. And the only thing that could undo it is for half a million youngsters to see armed troops with uh, rifles uh, pointed at them. It would end up like Attica. It was so frightening uh, to people who had no idea what was going on.
5: And I guess at the last moment they said, never mind, it's not really a disaster.
2: He said, uh, well, if anything goes wrong then, Mr. Roberts, it's all on your head. (laughs)
3: so that's a lot of risk and a lot of balls really to be uh just to be perfectly honest about it that he went through with it got through it all made the movie or he didn't but the movie people warner brothers did in the end probably made a lot of money off of it at the time there's no way they could have known that that's as far as i'm going to go with that tonight um the the overall reason for doing all that was to show how chaotic that festival was, and then Michael Lang is the is the face behind Woodstock because of the movie, because he was in the movie a lot, and so in '94 when they put together the 25th anniversary, they once again had another chaotic weekend. Now this one might have just been uh, just pure bad luck. It was. Torrential downpours for a very large portion of that week and leading into that weekend. It was a muddy, disastrous mess. I know of some people that went, but I haven't had any real first person conversations with them about it. So I can't speak to it to a whole heck of a lot of knowledge because clearly I wasn't there and I was 14 years old. But I did watch it on pay per view a lot. The Nine Inch Nails show, covered in mud, the Green Day show, which is infamous, uh, which I'm going to read a little bit of a piece from here in just a second. And, uh, um, um, overall inadequate everything dangerous conditions another situation of when you look back on it boy that was pretty neat but in at the time it was dangerous and and a, just overall a, a pretty big disaster which is the the best word to use when associating with the festival of woodstock is disaster this is uh, talking about the uh, green bay Green Green Bay. The Green Day show at uh, Woodstock 94. 20 minutes into their 35-minute set, things began to truly slide out of control. Slogging their way through When I Come Around, the sky was brown with missiles of made mud. The stage looked like a late-season, non-league football pitch from 1973. I'm assuming that's a soccer reference. Quote, I hope it rains so much you all get stuck, announced Mike Dirt, bass player for Green Day, unhelpfully. 15 minutes later, when attempting to leave the stage, Dirt would be tackled by security with such force that it sheared his front teeth. I'm assuming maybe that's because people were running and jumping off the stage and everybody was covered in mud and nobody could tell what who was part of the band and who wasn't. Uh, quote, look at me, I'm a fucking idiot, said Billy Joe Armstrong, the front man from Green Day. He might have been describing the spectators or else referring to himself or possibly both. Astonishing five years astonishingly five years later Woodstock 99 would prove even grimmer than its immediate predecessor a gathering that culminated In riots, rapes, and a stage set on fire. But in 1994, things were bad enough for now, leaving behind a stage in a state of perfect destruction. Green Day were expedited from the site via helicopter, a mode of transport of which Billy Joe Armstrong was terrified. Quote from Billy Joe, Woodstock 94 was about the closest thing to anarchy I've ever seen in my whole life. The singer would later recall adding that, quote, I didn't like it, one." Bit. And that's just one account from Woodstock 94 from louder.com. And I've talked about Woodstock 99 in the past, as recently as uh, around Christmas time when I got the spin magazine, that I wrote a letter to the editor because I didn't like the negative coverage that Woodstock 99 got. Well, at that time, I couldn't have known how awful it was because I didn't have the connectivity that we have now. My experience at Woodstock 99 was not awful. It wasn't great either. I was also 19 and didn't really know the difference between the two, but I had to go to a Woodstock. I wasn't going to live my life without going to a Woodstock if there's one to be uh to be available to go to. And Woodstock 50, I guess might still kind of be a thing. I don't know. I don't understand what in the world's going on here. It was one of the better-looking lineups I've ever seen. Ever seen. It was completely stacked. And uh the investors pulled out and I, I have a feeling it looked at the same thing. Michael Lang, once again, for the fourth time in 50 years, we're gonna let you bankrupt us. Michael Lang, for the fourth time in a half a century, we're gonna let your scatterbrain, acid-soaked mind come in here and try to figure out a way to turn a profit on a music festival just because your face is all over that movie. Bottom line is, if the acid-soaked mind of Michael Lang is involved Nobody with big money should get involved because he doesn't care about your money. He only cares about throwing a good party, and he's not even good at that either. My name is Brian Stone. This is the Stone on Air podcast, the not-so-weekly dose for the very first day of May in 2019. So here's what I've decided to do here in the last few minutes because I've taken a break in the middle of this segment to do a few other things around the house. And then I noticed there was a there's a shooter, shooting going on at uh, UNC Charlotte, it looks like. A couple of people on the campus uh, might be dead. I don't know. I don't have that in front of me. Oh, I, I know that. Uh, that's what I saw in a blurb on my phone. I'm not going to get far into that right now. We'll see how that unfolds. Also saw that the uh, daylight savings time bill that they're trying to push through the house has uh, gone through here in the state of Tennessee which anybody who listens to me regularly knows that I like the sound of that. It looks like it's going to the uh, governor's desk to be signed off on, but then that has to be also signed off federally, I guess, or something. i got to look more into that as well, talk about that on the next podcast. And I am not going to do the final segment I was going to do with uh, the Tony Kornheiser interview. I'm going to do that later this week and use that as an example of what might be like a Patreon kind of exclusive. Once I get that page set up to where it would be a separate podcast, it would be only available to people who were subscribers or uh, contributors or whatever exactly it is because i haven't been able to sit down and exactly figure out how that crowdsourcing platform works and uh, i think that'll be uh, fun just to put a little quick 15 20 minute segment uh later also this segment is in the neighborhood of 30 minutes long now so so i'm gonna go ahead and stop right here look for the second podcast this week towards the end of the week probably closer friday and i will definitely have a show next week because i want to get letitia wolf on to talk about the dead dead show coming to jj's in a week and a half somewhere in the middle of may i think it's may 17th so i appreciate you guys and gals being here listening on the radio here locally in chattanooga and downloading liking subscribing like sharing always love As I used to always say and get made fun of by so many people for uh, how stupid that sounds. But, hey, whatevs, bro. at Stone On Air on all social media is how you can get a hold of me. And I'll do it again here later this week. This is a Stone On Air podcast, the not-so-weekly dose for May 1st, 2019. We'll talk to you again here soon. Y'all take care. Bye. (laughs)